Um, all right, so I'll count us down. Are you ready? I think so. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Are you going to do the inhale every time? I'm going to do it. <gasps> Almost like you're exhaling the music. Uh-huh. Like your breath out is... Is, is music. Is tunes. Yeah. That's, that's usually what it is. My voice itself is music. That's true. You're, the very air you exhale, the mm-hmm. carbon dioxide leaving your body is, yes. is it's, musical magic. It's all notes and chords. Uh, Ted chord to be exact. Ugh, yep. I'm that out. joke just happened. I quit. <laughs> Too bad you're under contract. Um, you, that joke made me blue like a beetle. Ooh. Well, harden up that shell, because we're talking yeah. about Night of the Living Dead. See, now I'm complicit in this. I have to stay. Yeah, it's pretty much. You're trapped. I've chained you to the table. Yeah, uh, it's it's actually true. Uh, you can hear the chains mm-hmm. rattling. The sound design is production value right here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, okay, so we are. We're talking about Night of the Living Dead. As we are recording this, uh, George A. Romero, a uh, revolutionary filmmaker, the... Uh, progenitor of the zombie phenomenon that we now experience in our popular culture uh, passed away about a week ago. And I thought, well, what a better time then to take a look at his original motion picture, his, uh, I believe, his first outing as a feature director, Night of the Living Dead. I have seen it. Tari had not, but I saw it. I realized about seven minutes into the movie, I saw it long enough ago that it doesn't count. I thought long enough ago that my memory of it was so hazy. It was so non-existent, in fact, beyond the very broad strokes. Yeah. So I, I had seen it. I knew what to expect, but I had a very, very different experience with it than I, I'm sure I did the last time I saw it, which, again, was a decade plus ago. Right. Uh, I actually... Uh, have had only before yesterday seen a live on stage version of the movie. Okay. Um, so back in college, they were doing a live Night of the Living Dead starring uh, Greg Edwards, who is he's a, a San Francisco comedian, now an LA comedian who does thug notes. If you watch online uh, YouTube shows on the uh, Wisecracked Network, uh, just shout out to Greg Edwards. He's a friend of mine. Um, and it was really fun. One of the big pieces of it was that anytime someone would die or a zombie would get hit, they would like spray the audience with fake blood. Fun. And so that was my first exposure to this movie and it ended very upbeat and triumphantly. And so that is not how the motion picture ends. Nope, not at all. It really bummed me out. Like even through this morning, I was real bummed. Sure. Oh, we'll talk, we'll talk about it. There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack that I'd completely forgotten about but i i think before we get into discussing the details of the movie itself i think there's some uh broader cultural context that's worth hitting uh, i mentioned a minute ago that this this movie romero's work and specifically night of the living dead was really uh, ground zero if you will for everything that we understand about zombies in our modern popular culture now he didn't invent Zombies. Uh, right. Zombies existed, and movies had been made about zombies before. Uh, a couple of the notable ones were uh, 
Victor Halpern's White Zombie in 1932, Jacques Tourneur's I Walked with a Zombie in 1943. But what zombie meant in those cases was somebody uh, basically who had their mind enslaved by like a voodoo witch doctor. It was like almost always tied into voodoo practices. Okay. Uh, Romero is the guy who who reinvented zombies. And weirdly, we don't use the word zombies in Night of the Living Dead at all. Mm-hmm. They're called ghouls. But all of it's uh, the the undead who, who roam around uh, feeding on flesh. Their bite can infect you, can turn you. All of the, you know, take out the head in whatever way you can. Like, all of that came from Night of the Living Dead. Right. And you see it throughout the, the movie where they start... Uh, really cleverly laying out these rules through the news broadcasts where essentially as they're learning information, they're sharing it with we, the audience, and also the people who are in, stuck in the house. And I thought that was uh, that was one of my big notes was how organically they laid out the rules of the zombies because that was something that wasn't established before this movie had come out. Yeah, I feel like you need to, as best you're able when you watch a movie like this, try and put yourself in the mindset of somebody in 1968 mm-hmm. who had never seen a story like this before. And it's tough to do because, I mean, Walking Dead is one of the biggest things in popular culture. It's really hard to forget you know what zombies are and how they work at this point. Yeah. But I think if you're able to try and put yourself in that space, you you really get a sense of how shocking it must have been to audiences of the time, especially because... This was before 1968 when it came out. This was just before the MPAA rating system was implemented. Mm-hmm. So it would get shown at the Saturday matinees in America where anyone, because there was no rating system in place, anyone, including little kids, could buy a ticket. If you read Roger Ebert's review of the movie, it's less a review of the movie, which he did respect a good deal. It is more a review of his experience at this matinee screening he went to watching these little kids uh, react to the movie. Mm -hmm. And he describes how, like, about the midpoint of the movie, it stops being fun scary for them and starts becoming truly, truly harrowing. Right. And, you know, we'll get to this plot specifics later and how a lot of the turns we see this movie take, especially as far as who makes it, who doesn't. We weren't used to, like I was there, audiences at the time were not used to seeing a horror movie this unrelentingly bleak. A lot of the biggest uh, horror movies, the most iconic horror movies before that, many of them, I mean, you think of, say, the Universal Monster movies, the classic, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, etc. Yeah. In almost every case, you get... uh, something very scary you know the monster or whoever it is or dracula they go around they do their nasty business they kill people whether uh, intentionally or not and at the end you know the hero defeats the monster and the hero gets to ride off into the sunset with the girl because the hero is always a dude in these 1940s of course of course it's always a white dude too which is another another way in which night of the living dead is is pretty noteworthy yeah um, but all of that we will we will get to <laughs> um but a massive departure as far as just just going bleak in a way that especially if you're a nine-year-old kid walking into this movie Mm -hmm. in 1968 i can imagine you're not prepared for so roger ebert described in his review watching the kids in the theater and watching like this little girl who at a certain point just started crying like at one of the scenes and he, he started to ask himself well what is what is the impact of something 
like this on a young mind. And I feel like now in 2017, that impact gets watered down because everything in our culture, even the, the innocuous stuff, is more extreme than what you would get in a movie theater in 1968. Mm-hmm. But yeah, think about how if you are seeing Night of the Living Dead for the first time and you've never seen anything even a little bit like it and you're like nine, imagine like trying to put that somewhere in your brain. Yeah, I could imagine it being legitimately terrifying. Like the way it's shot and the way that you are kind of just thrown into this world, it feels super claustrophobic. And it from the very beginning, at least when they're like boarding up the before all the like downstairs people are introduced it it feels like a situation where there's no solution there's no way to get out and so essentially they're just waiting to die mm-hmm. and so i couldn't even imagine trying to process that as a young child because yeah as you were saying there there used to there being some kind of out and there being some kind of hero to come in and save the day and that they like imply that that might be a thing and then it ends up turning on itself, which is the biggest bummer of the whole movie. Yes. And it is, it is so nuts to me that this movie that was uh, essentially a one-off at the time and and has an ending that's about as bleak as can be, I think given the story they're telling Mm -hmm. spawned five direct sequels. I think well, yeah, sequels slash so. like prequels, interquels, because you've got uh, after that you've got Dawn of the Dead, of course. Right. You've got Land of the Dead. No, you've got Day of the Dead after Dawn. It's Dawn, Day, Land, and then Diary of the Dead, which I believe takes place concurrently with Night of the Living Dead. But okay. I think it has to do with vlogs, so I'm not really sure how that works. And then Survival of the Dead, which I think was 2009, which was the most recent. And then, of course, a number of remakes, riff, rip-offs, homages, homages. Yeah. Um, uh, we pronounce them homage, homages, 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 this is why you tune in folks. Um, (laughs) but, but so nuts to me that it became, became, it's so nuts, but also a bit of a no brainer because if that concept doesn't exist previously, I can see how it would so capture people's imaginations. Mm -hmm. But what I do think is really interesting about night of the living dead in particular, I don't know how you tracked it down to watch it it's on a couple of streaming platforms but one of the streaming platforms it's on is you can find it in its entirety on youtube and the reason you can find it in its entirety on youtube is because night of the living dead despite the massive uh franchise and pop culture movement that it spawned is public domain and it Hmm. fell into the public domain in america almost immediately because there wasn't a uh proper copyright branding on the title when it finally on the prints when it finally went to market the branding was there when the motion picture had its original title. Apparently, it was originally called Night of the Flesh Eaters. Okay. And it, that, those versions of the print with that title on it had the proper like copyright marks on it. Mm-hmm. And when they retitled it, it did not. So it fell into public domain almost immediately. Interesting. So I, I guess if you want to go and do... If you want to play Ben in your own Night of the Living Dead and you want to do a revisionist version where Ben takes down all of the rednecks at the end like he's Django, you could <laughs> you could probably do it. I mean, I feel like I have to now that you've suggested it. <laughs> but okay, okay. So let's let's get into the movie itself. Now, you, you'd never seen it. So I guess I, maybe the way I want to lead the first phase of this conversation is having never seen it before. I want to talk to you about 
what worked for you, what didn't work for you, what was some of the stuff that really, really stood out to you as being particularly noteworthy? Okay. Um, I really liked, I liked Ben, Dwayne Jones. Uh, he was literally the best actor in the whole movie. Yes. And I... And that was no accident because he was chosen because as George Romero will tell you, like he gave the best performance. And so like the, the role was essentially written for him. Yes. He Romero, of course, was asked later. It's like, well, were you really trying to not even court controversy? It was like, were you trying to like make a statement or do something revolutionary by casting a black lead in this movie? He's like, no, they just gave the best audition. Right. But I love too. he gets asked those questions because we were not in 1968 used to seeing a black lead in almost any American movie, let alone mm-hmm. a horror movie. I love, too, uh, right after the news broke that George Romero had passed, uh, Jordan Peele, of course, writer-director of Get Out, tweeted a photo of Dwayne Jones as Ben, and in reference to Romero, said he did it first, mm-hmm. which I thought was cool. I'm like, yeah, he. If, uh, unless, I'm sure, you know, if you dig far enough, there's probably a title more obscure where somebody cast a black lead in their movie. Right. But, this was the first time, to my knowledge, that it was done in a way that really was noticed. Yeah. And there were def- there was, especially the way that the movie ended, kind of bringing up Jordan Peele. Like, I feel like there was a very distinct, like, homage in that ending, f- the way that... Because there was a moment when I was like, man, he's going to get blamed for, for killing all these white people. And it's... it's it And there are interviews with Jordan saying, like... Get Out was directly influenced by this movie. Um, So, like, that whole thing really worked for me. Um, I thought that the way that the story was told, uh, just from the the fact that you only get the perspective of these people and you get a sense of what's going on around through these news and these radio broadcasts. Uh, And so you see the passage of time uh, through their eyes, which I thought was really interestingly done. And it allowed them to keep the budget low, which I thought was awesome. Um, And, and I also liked, uh, I liked the most of the, the ladies in this movie, um, in terms of they they varied significantly, but they were uh, like they had their own personalities. You know, Helen, who was kind of snarky. You had Judy, who was very like at a certain point, you realize that she's caring. Um, and then the only thing the only one that didn't work for me was Barb, who I had read because when she started, I, I made a specific point of noting that she's smart. She's resourceful. Like she took the time, she got in the car, the guy tried to break the, the glass. I think I actually think my favorite moment in the entire movie. And I, for, I know, of course, everybody remembers the line. Even if, even if you've never seen night of the living dead, yeah, everybody knows the line. They're coming to get you, Barbara. But I really, I completely forgot about her response to it. It's not the line itself. It's her delivery of stop it. You're ignorant. I really, <laughs> really enjoy yeah, um, I I felt like she had her own kind of agency at the beginning, and then at a certain point she loses it, um, which bummed me out. So, like, Barbara was the only thing that really didn't work for me in this movie. And I had read that essentially the, the character was supposed to be a strong, independent, like, very uh, put-together woman, and then the actress made the choice to have her be catatonic with fear. 
Um, and I think it was a choice and I respect big choices. I just feel like I would have preferred the version where she was working in tandem with Ben. I feel like, yeah, the, the catatonia is definitely a choice. I do feel like you have to be very careful when you're playing catatonia because you run the risk of being completely flat. Right. And yeah, very, very not. I, I know what you mean. Um, I, it didn't bother that aspect of it didn't bother me as much, but I do agree. I would have liked to see her be a little bit more proactive. Yeah, uh, than she was. I do like. Uh, I like though. It's so, it's sad the way she ultimately goes out in the spoilers. The way she ultimately <laughs> goes out in the movie where she sees now her zombified brother mm-hmm. and like starts to go after him and is then consumed by the horde. Yeah, it's a bummer. It it is. I felt like they were going to have her turn at some point. So there are these few moments where uh, essentially they kind of hint towards it, but it just doesn't happen. Uh, There's this moment when uh, Helen, Helen, I'm saying her name right, doesn't matter. Um, Mrs. Cooper (laughs) lights a match and she starts looking at it very like fearfully. And I was like, that seems like a zombie in, 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 What's the word? I can't think of words today. It looks like a, a zombie who is in process. It seems like the reaction that they would have. And so I thought that eventually she would also turn the same way that the kid did. Um, but she, they paid it off more by having her, her brother become a zombie and take her away. I do think it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, uh, with the exception of Ben and uh, obviously the little girl, all of the characters that we follow in this movie, they essentially get themselves killed. Yes. Which I think is is really interesting. Like, because obviously the threat, as perceived, as depicted, is largely external. But once they're all trapped in that house together, they all start, with again, with the notable exception of Ben, they all start making really questionable decisions that ultimately cost them their lives. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm think, see, I'm having a hard time with names today, um. too. So, uh, yeah, if we'll, we were going uh, down the line, uh, Tom and Judy, uh, they they end up getting themselves killed with they the car. Set, they accidentally set the car on fire. Yeah. Like, what how easy idiots. is it to not set the car on fire on accident? It, apparently, it's very hard. <laughs> it's really challenging. Yeah. I was on their team, and then the moment when, when Judy ran outside and was like, I gotta go with Tom, I was like, they are dead. Yeah, they're super dead. Um. And it it was troublesome because th- this plan could have worked, but she ruined everything. Yes. And then Tom ruined everything. And then Ben had to fight off a bunch of zombies all by himself. Like, it's, it's this guy trying to carry a bunch of helpless people on his back. And eventually, they're just tr- they just jump off uh, to their deaths. Uh, it's... <laughs> I don't even remember the context of... Uh, I want to say it was a web comic, but it was talking about babies and how caring for a baby is like con- conscious, constantly chasing after something that wants to kill itself. So it's like this baby is trying to drink bleach and it's like, why won't you let me drink bleach? And it's like, cause I'm your parent. And that's what it felt like. Ben was actively trying to keep these people from murdering themselves to death. 
Right, and I feel like, too, uh, the scene towards the end of the movie where uh, Helen Cooper is the is the wife in the house. Yeah. Right, okay, I got that correct in my brain. Um, <laughs> their, where their daughter has uh, been bitten when we meet them, and the daughter turns. And mm-hmm. eventually, we get this sequence that, like, especially for 1968, is, is dope, um, <laughs> where she sees her now zombified daughter walking towards her and can't just just can't move can't like it's her it's her little girl yeah and the one guy who could grab like like you always see in these movies now um the one guy who could grab her and be like that's not your daughter anymore and could like pull her out of there ben is is upstairs trying to make sure that everyone doesn't get themselves killed mm-hmm. so she ends up getting herself killed by by her, her own inaction and we get this sequence where the little kid just stabs her to death with a trowel and it's for, for 1968 even in black and white it's 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 pretty brutal. It's a lot, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I I think I had also read that like this is one of the first horror movies that didn't shy away from the gruesomeness, and so like all the scenes where they are eating the flesh and where people are getting stabbed and like this, especially the first one or the first or second one where Ben essentially plows a a pile, a pile driver through some guy's head, yeah, um, or tire iron through someone's head like that stuff is usually like cut away from or just implied but george romero was like yo son we gotta show that and audiences were so not used to that at Mm -hmm. the time now i feel like we're so we're so immune to depictions of violence on screen for the most part right obviously hardcore like gore stuff is not everybody's cup of tea very understandably yeah but like Hannibal aired on NBC for three years. You know what I mean? So, like, we we have a much higher cultural tolerance level for graphic depictions of violence. Mm -hmm. Not the case in 1968. There was quite a bit of controversy at the time. Uh, The way I feel like there is, there was every decade or so until you got to the 90s. Right. uh, Big controversy about the depiction of violence. And, like, uh, again, because there was no rating system yet in place when this movie was released... Anybody, including small kids, could go and buy a ticket. So that, I understand the conversation taking place then more than I did, say, in like the early 70s when like Straw Dogs and uh, Clockwork Orange came mm-hmm. out in the same year. And everybody was like, the violence in movies is ruining our country. I get it less then because we had a rating system in place by then, I believe. And yeah. these were R-rated movies. You couldn't be nine and buy a ticket by yourself. Whereas in 68... You could. I feel like if there was ever a time to talk about the impact of violence in cinema on young minds, it would absolutely have been then. Right. But then at the same time, uh, it, it, nope, I have no opinion about it. <laughs> I don't. Like, because to me, it, it's, it, it's always goes back to responsible parenting. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be on this podcast being like, ah, parents are responsible for bringing their kids to movies. And if they don't want their kids to see it, they're responsible for talking about it and not letting them see it. Neither one of us has children. So far be it for me to tell other parents how they should or should right. not be raising their kids. I do, however, think, yeah, you, it is part of your job to contextualize right. certain things. as But as much as you're able. Because especially now when every kid has a smartphone before they're three, it's very difficult to keep track 24 7 of every bit of content that your kid is consuming so it's like the other side of that coin is you have to hope that the kid is intellectually curious enough to ask questions about the things that they're seeing yeah or you just put locks on their phones you put them in a closet until they reach 18 control everything that they see do 
and consume. And then once, once they're old enough that you don't have to take care of them, you just shove them outside and let the world take care of it. You just, you just put a big, like, until they're 18 and out of the house, you put a big framed poster in their room that says, not for YouTube. Yeah. yeah let's make these and sell them totally we're gonna be wealthy <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be the oprahs of like dorm room posters dang there dorm, right there's not a dorm room poster oprah yet uh no no that's a market that's wide open and then we're gonna do we're gonna do like a lethal weapon style buddy action comedy and it's gonna be called oprah's and it's gonna star me and you and we're gonna get Ooh. sued as crap i mean i could i i would say I don't one. I don't have anything for Oprah to take from me. That's <laughs> fair. It would, also, make, it would make no sense for Oprah to invest the time to sue me. No, but it, it would be dope street cred to be like, "Yo, I got sued by Oprah for my amazing buddy cop <laughs> film called Oprah's." I mean, if anything, she should see it as a humana 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 homage. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> All right, going back. I think yes. it's interesting, and I am not, I'm certainly not going to profess to be an expert on George Romero's biography. Yeah. But I know that prior to the production of Night of the Living Dead, I know that he was working, uh, his, his filmmaking experience was largely tied to making industrial films. And he was really able to, uh, much in the way that for a while Robert Altman did uh, for a stretch decades and decades and decades ago, uh, was able to use his work making industrial films to try certain things and to to sharpen his craft, as it were. Mm -hmm. And he uh, originally conceived of this project, I believe, with another writer, and it was originally written as like a horror comedy. It wasn't originally about zombies as we understand them now. I think it was originally about aliens, if I'm not okay. mistaken. It was, a, it was, I think, a fairly similar story, but I think it was like aliens come to Earth and they're all bumping around and messing with people. Right. Obviously, not a whole lot of DNA of that concept remains <laughs> in the finished movie, except, and this is something I had completely forgotten about until I rewatched it, we do get an explanation uh, of the origin of this zombie virus, yep. and it is, in fact, alien. It's right. radiation from like a Venus probe yeah. that, that came to Earth and started infecting people. Also, sidebar, the doctor that is uh, being interviewed in these news segments that we occasionally cut to yeah. is named Dr. Grimes. Okay. Which I'm like, the odds, the odds that Robert Kirkman didn't name his lead sheriff character after this bit part in Night of the Living Dead now seems very small to me. I have no context for this. Oh, uh, uh, so you've never, are you like the one guy who's never seen any of Walking Dead? I have, yes, I am. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the lead of the series, uh, played by Andrew Lincoln on the show, is yeah. named Rick Grimes. Ah. I now have to assume that this is a reference to this bit character. Robert Kirkman, if you're listening, please dispel or confirm this rumor as you are willing to do so. But I thought that was cool. The other thing that I think is really interesting is like, so there have been a number of, versions of this movie released in the years since where they've colorized it yeah i don't know if you have feelings one way or the other about colorizing black and white movies i have feelings about it <laughs> and they are negative uh but we've done it a few times but i also think you really you lose something when you colorize it but i think too it's a it's a historical context type of thing because now of course when we watch the news for example right if we watch the news on tv we can get it in beautiful, high definition. Uh, the colors all really pop. Mm -hmm. Looks looks real pretty. Yeah. Whereas in 1968, if you had a TV in your home and you got the news on TV, it was in this uh, slightly 
grainy looking black and white image yeah which gives night of the living dead as it exists this this stripped down low budget black and white picture almost a pseudo documentary quality interesting which at the time would of course make it even more jarring to audience members now of course it doesn't quite have the same effect because there's no we don't all watch our news in really crappy black and white anymore right but i feel like the impact was increased because of it yeah at the time Right. It's it's almost like the equivalent of our like found footage movies and things of that sort. It it reflects the medium in which we consume and so it shocks us in the same way that like if we were to receive it from a uh non fictional source. It, that's a fancy way of saying what you said, but cooler. Um and I I will say I don't I guess I don't have an opinion of colorized versions i did see that that was an option on uh, amazon which is how i watched uh shout out to amazon.com sponsor us uh and i i did i looked through like i just skipped through to see how it appeared in the colorized version but i i did want to experience it the way that it was originally meant to be experienced which is black and white especially knowing that like in black and white movies, blood, was, they used, like, chocolate sauce and things of that sort. Yes. And so I, I didn't want to, like, that disassociation uh, to be like, ah, oh, that to, chocolate to your, sauce is red. Well, yeah. to your point about the, the chocolate sauce, for example, and it's because you could have, obviously, they could have gotten a hold of some, you know, corn syrup or something like that. Yeah. But it just looks better in black and white to mm-hmm. use something that is, in reality, brownish. Right. Because, yeah, it, there's something visceral and, and, and gross about it. And also the consistency is so... It just feels sticky right. and sugary in a way that... obviously it's, it's chocolate syrup, probably, so it is. But when you associate it with blood that's coming out of a body, yeah. a human, not even a zombified body, a human body, there's an added layer of... Ugh, it's, like it's, yeah. it's like it's congealing as it's coming out. Mm-hmm. There's a story from on the set of this movie where essentially the scenes where they're all eating the human flesh, it is like a roast ham with chocolate sauce on it, which <laughs> made people not literally gag on terrible. set. Uh, yeah, it was, especially with the fervor and like v- ferocity that they were eating that food. You could imagine like something that gross going into your belly that fast. There had to be just like a, a bucket of, of vomit just hanging out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that. Ew. But I but I, I enjoy too, and again, uh, I was a little bit fuzzy on the production history of this movie. I'm sure somebody listening is like, you're duh, how dare you talk about this movie unless you've memorized the entire biography of George Romero. But the stories that I, when I went back after I watched the movie and I started reading about how we ended up with this final product, I thought it was really interesting the number of permutations that it went to to get us to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really speaks to the argument that, you know, everybody will always... It's It started with, like, the French pushing the auteur theory. Now everybody gives the director sole credit in a lot of cases for the way the movie comes out, for better or for worse. Yeah. And although, of course, there are great directors who have very specific styles and really run the show with crazy efficiency, it is movies, maybe more than any other 
form, maybe, certainly more than any other form, is a massively collaborative medium. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, even after all of the permutations that the script went through as it was being written, all of the different versions of this story, then you hire the actors you hire, and they bring things to it as well. I mean, uh, Dwayne Jones in particular, who like is now low-key my hero, I think. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the character of Ben, as written... Uh, originally was a very simple truck driver character mm -hmm. and very minimal education. And Dwayne Jones was a very educated guy and he didn't like the way the role was written and he didn't want to play it that way. So he, uh, the, the story is uh, that Dwayne Jones himself essentially rewrote his own dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, to better reflect a version of the character that he could relate to, was connected to, wanted to play, which I think is really cool. Like, that character, if you don't cast specifically Dwayne Jones, that character is not the character we get in the movie. Right. And that character was the big standout character. Like, if anything, he was the main thing that was driving the plot forward, for better or for worse, in terms of how it turns out. Like, he's the one who's making all the big choices, and I, I can't even imagine the how the story would have gone if it was just this like simple truck driver who was essentially i imagine he would have to be pretty just frantic uh kind of the same way that uh mr cooper was in that he's just trying everything he can to save himself yeah and mr i feel like we see this character in almost every single zombie story that we've seen since right the guy who uh, uh, bristles aggressively at everything the smartest person in the room says, mm -hmm. the most uh, efficient person in the room, the one who's actually going to save them, who just obstinately refuses to go along with it because they think they know better. Yeah. And like you say, they're largely out to save themselves. Even if they say, well, I want to save my, my family too. They're, they're largely out to save themselves. And in uh, refusing to go along with the collective plan, they end up getting at least themselves killed and frequently multiple other characters as well. Right. And... I do like that they called him out pretty early on. Like there's this moment when he walks down and starts talking to his wife, Helen, and uh, she's like, oh, you just always got to be right. I don't even live with you because you're a piece of poop. Um, and I because I, I, I feel like even in nowadays, that character for the most part, like people will be like, oh man, Mr. Cooper is kind of a jerk, but sometimes he's right. But I like that from the get go, everyone's established that he's a jerk and he's completely wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but again, that, that character is in almost every zombie story. The dude who is uh, a, just a jerk from the beginning and is always wrong all the way up through not just, obviously, the, the rest of the movies in this series, but all the way up through, I mean, uh, Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead has that character as well in the form of David. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, you've seen Shaun of the Dead. No, right? I haven't. You haven't? I haven't. Oh. It's the only of the, it's the only one of the trilogy I haven't seen. Okay. Well, it's the, it's the character played by Dylan Moran, and he's very much that character. Oh, now, it's, I'm actually glad that you saw Night of the Living Dead first, because you're going to get so many jokes and references that you may enjoy but you wouldn't have gotten otherwise got it and to edgar uh, edgar wright was another guy who after uh george romero passed you know uh 
via Twitter, essentially, credited George Romero with essentially giving him a film career. It was Romero's work, primarily, that inspired him to make Shaun of the Dead. The title is a direct reference to the title of Romero's second zombie movie. Right. He, he says, you know, thank you for giving me a film career, which is which is really cool because without without Romero's work, there is no Shaun of the Dead. There's no Hot Fuzz, World's End, Scott Pilgrim versus the World movie. There's no Baby Driver currently in theaters. Go check it out. Nobody's paying <laughs> me to say that. I just like that movie. Um, and he's not alone. There are so, so, so many filmmakers whose work we would not have were it not for the work that Romero did back in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's crazy because I don't typically uh, compare horror to sci-fi, but like I feel like especially this movie, you can like actively see the ripples that it's caused and like map them out from 1968 through now, how people have done different interpretations in the same way that like the people who wrote sci-fi books would eventually influence other sci-fi books would start which would eventually uh reflect reality and in that in that way and that people who grew up on those books would create the technology that reflects the things that they grew up on and it's the same way that like people who've watched this movie were influenced by it and it would essentially make movies that made them feel the way that dawn of the dead and uh night of the living dead made them feel which is essentially would do the same for people who saw those movies and it just continues all throughout then and now. Yeah, and you're you're speaking on uh, more of a meta level, but what I like, I wish I wish I remembered where I heard this so I could attribute it to a source. But I heard recently somebody phrase it thusly that science fiction, science fiction uh, as opposed to horror, that science fiction tends tends to deal with the macro and yeah. horror tends to deal with the micro. And I feel like especially in a reality in the reality of this movie where the micro um the uh the very intense personal visceral horror that they're experiencing juxtapose it with the source of the external threat is literally radiation from space mm-hmm. about as macro as you can get and i feel like in a way that i don't think i was i had remembered because i didn't remember the the venus radiation yeah you you can blend both the macro and the micro in a really interesting way with this mythology in a way that you don't you don't really get in. Stop it. You don't really get in horror stories unless you're explicitly dealing with uh, an extraterrestrial antagonist. I I was wondering from the moment the movie started if there was going to be an explanation for the like zombification or the ghouls or whatever it was, um, or if it was just going to be like a natural phenomenon, kind of like the way that it was in a movie. Let's let's say a random movie like The Happening, you know, where it just happened and then it was like, what a freak incident. Um, but I'm glad that we got an, an actual explanation, which I think made it easier to just kind of sit back and uh, just enjoy what was happening. Yes. Um, I love too, like reading about all of the tricks that they use. I mean, you were talking about the chocolate syrup. You're talking about the ham. Yeah. Um, the costumes came from Goodwill, uh, essentially, or were donated by different people. A lot of the background players were friends and family members. Like the background zombies were just friends, family members, people that Romero had worked with making industrial films. Yeah. Um, if you read about the production history, much in the way, of course, I think of I think of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead, another movie that I don't believe would exist without Night of the Living Dead. Right. And of course, then we don't get Sam Raimi's career if we don't get Evil Dead in the first place. 
much in the way that if you study the production of Evil Dead, it's almost like a, a how-to make a, a horror movie for almost no money at all with almost no resources. Yeah. Reading the production history of Night of the Living Dead even more so because I feel like, you know, we're, we're a decade removed from Night of the Living Dead by the time we get to Evil Dead and the technology has advanced a bit. The resources available for less money have advanced a bit. Whereas in 68, you, you really just had to just scrap for every last little bit that you could get. And it's really cool to read about how they were able to pull all this stuff together, working with almost no resources to speak of. For me, even just figuring out how they put together those TV shots, and they, they specifically thank a TV studio. So I imagine like they had either that studio broadcast directly and then they just recorded or something to that effect. But even little things like that were really interesting. Yeah. And another thing that struck me about the movie that I didn't, I hadn't really considered before watching it again this time was this. Okay. We've talked about a number of ways in which it was a departure from the horror movies that existed previously. Yeah. Another big change that that Romero made was most of the horror films that we'd seen, certainly many of the bigger horror films that we had seen in the decades prior, were not set even in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some I think, uh, commentator at one point, you know, said it's not, it's, it's set in Pennsylvania, not tra- Transylvania. Uh, and I think that's really interesting that prior to Night of the Living Dead, we didn't see very many American set horror stories, and we certainly didn't see them set in these small rural areas where for all intents and purposes you or I could live. Yeah. I I feel like without, for example, that that aspect of this movie, we maybe don't get to say Halloween, which is which is that exactly. That's it's that to the nth degree where it's like a, a suburban neighborhood where any of us could live. Yeah. Uh where people are now being stalked by uh, uh near inhuman force of violence and and death and not niceness Mm -hmm. but night of the living dead did that first yeah and speaking of being like stalked by a a force the opening sequence of this movie like no knowledge of the zombie stuff to come really uh it felt to me like every woman's worst nightmare because essentially it's this like grabby dude who chases her from a cemetery to a house and just won't leave. And like that, so supernatural aspects aside, that in and of itself is a terrifying situation. And and to your point, it is almost made more terrifying because of the low budget, because I think they wanted to save a lot of the scarier, more gruesome zombie makeup effects, mm-hmm. you know, because they had to stretch their budget as far as they could for later in the movie. Yeah. This first guy you see isn't even that heavily made up he looks like a dude who's just had a really long rough night you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and that to your point i think makes it even more jarring when you look at it through that prism yeah um it's well so so another thing i really i feel like we would be remiss if we don't discuss is the social commentary that exists in this movie now Dawn of the Dead, certainly, the social commentary is definitely more pronounced and more intentional. I think a lot of the social commentary of Night of the Living Dead was not accidental, but wasn't necessarily planned. Right. I mean, for example, the casting of Dwayne Jones means that when you get to the end of the movie, spoilers, and he's the only survivor, and then your black hero is 
shot in the head and killed by a posse of rednecks. Originally, as as written, they wrote the part for a white actor, not because it's like he has to be white. Obviously, he didn't. Right. But just because this white dude's getting together to write a script, and you know, you, yeah, it was a less woke time, and people were probably just thinking of writing for people that looked like them. Right. But once you cast a black man in that role, that ending takes on a, a new meaning, a new weight, because we were uh, this was right around the time that MLK was killed, for example, and Romero mm-hmm. was asked about, well, was that an intentional? reference to the shooting of MLK and he said no that was largely an accident that just came about because uh, Dwayne gave the best audition and we cast a black actor in this part right so it wasn't necessarily something they went into production looking to comment on but now of course in hindsight it's hard not to see it yeah well and that's the thing is before going into the movie I didn't do a lot of research because I didn't want to be spoiled and I didn't want to like go into it with a certain perspective. And I, I had in talking to different people over the course of my life heard that like, and I think it's mostly in Dawn of the Dead that essentially the zombies in that movie are supposed to represent like consumerism it's and blah, big, blah, blah, yes. blah, blah, blah. The, the consumerist aspect of it is a big part of the, I was going to say messaging, but that makes it sound like Dawn of the Dead is preachy, which it isn't, but it's no. a big part of the, the like social the under, concept yeah. behind the, stop it behind the, <laughs> behind the movie. We're just we're just having a party on this side of the table. Today. Totally, yeah. Uh, that's all we do. We're like hammered, <laughs> like literally, we have hammers in our hands and we're just smashing them around because uh, that's what we do. That's how podcasts are made. Now you know. Yeah. Now you've you've peeked inside the sausage factory. <laughs> By the way, that's got to be when you drop your LP, you need to call it Sausage Factory. Sausage Factory? Yeah. Ooh. It, it sounds like it would be a parody of uh, R. Kelly's Chocolate Factory. That's why, that's why that sounded like it was just a hair off from something I already knew. Yeah. It's because R. Kelly has a... Has the chocolate uh so with recent news about r kelly i don't think i i think i have to wait a while because uh, he's he's not it's not a, not good news right now no although i haven't really i know the story you're referring to where apparently he's keeping a harem of women just imprisoned in a yep. cult-like environment uh-huh you're hearing you're hearing differing differing accounts right far be it from i'm not there i don't know what's actually going on but imagine getting to a point in your life where even if it is empirically false you arrive at a point in your life where you actually have to publicly say no i am not keeping a cult of brainwashed women in a basement somewhere (laughs) like what what twists and turns must your journey have taken i mean but that's when you know you've made it i mean (laughs) that's like the ultimate moment where you're like all right uh, I'm famous. Uh, and then you look at your bank account and you're like, confirmed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but <laughs> that aside, <laughs> Sausage Factory aside. Yes. Um, so, yes, I, I was watching this movie and I couldn't help but feel like there was a specific undertone. And I later read that like a lot of the, st- the staff members and the, not staff members, the crew and the cast were like, no, nah, we just, you know, people are layering on their own perspective. Um, but to me, especially now in our current cl- political climate, it felt hyper prescient. Like there's this guy who is just, he's literally just fighting to survive. And there are these people who are, trying to support him and they they are they're they have different aspects of what they are representing in that like the the woman who is seeing what's going on and knows that it's bad but doesn't know what to do in the face of it there's the the guy who thinks he knows exactly what to do right and is 
more hurting the cause than anything. There's the guy who is really trying to help and he's, he's doing the things that he's, he, he's supposed to, but at some point he falters. Uh, Sometimes it's his fault. Sometimes it's not the one who doubts that the cause itself is valid and doesn't know if they should follow it. Uh, You know, and the, don't even get me started on the kid who essentially is a product of the world around her and as eventually like works her way into becoming what the main issue is. Um, and and then at the end, no matter despite all of his efforts, he ends up getting gunned down um, by people who are supposed to be helping him. It's uh, I had a couple of thoughts watching it. Right, and you talk about the prescience, and uh, okay, I have, I have a few thoughts. So I I really enjoy that all of the social commentary that people have attached to the original Night of the Living Dead that people have read into. Yeah. For example, a lot of people retroactively uh, believed it to be a commentary on the senselessness of the Vietnam War, for example. And if you watch the movie with that in mind, I can see it. Right. But I like that it wasn't necessarily their intention. I like this is something that uh, David Lynch talks about. We're going to start a drinking game, drink every time I bring up David Lynch on the show. Yeah. <laughs> But he talks about, because he's very famously never discusses uh, the work after it's done. Uh, he essentially, he just wants the work to speak for itself when people ask him specific questions about what his intentions were. Oh, what did you mean with this? Did you, the, the popular going theory is that this, this scene, this moment, whatever it is, this image means this. And his answer is always a variation on, well, I know what it means to me. Uh, and if you saw that, in it and it means that to you great right and it's artist subjective and i the same applies here i like that the intention wasn't necessarily to make a big bold statement about civil rights vietnam whatever it is but the movie is structured in such a way where you can add all of that subtext to it yourself and it works like you say now especially now feels very prescient Mm -hmm. i had a moment like I don't. I wasn't there in 1968, and I know, of course, uh, MLK had just been assassinated, and obviously, civil rights was the big social movement of the time. So I have to imagine that people had a reaction to this black lead character being gunned down at the end by rednecks. Yeah. But now it it's harrowing. It, oh yeah. It's deeply, deeply disturbing. Far more so than any of the zombie violence in the movie is. And I had a moment where, and this is like, I'm not, this is easy. I'm not proud of it, but I had this moment where I was like, Oh, all of those guys are Trump voters. <laughs> like if this, if this was 2016, all the, the posse at the end, everyone, you know, everyone in the voted for Trump. Right. I think, I think also uh, Harry Cooper probably would have been a Trump voter as well. Probably. But it's, it's frightening how you could layer today's, political climate on top of this movie as well and you Mm -hmm. could have a completely different experience with it than you would have even just four or five years ago right hell two years ago Uh, even when we're reading books and and taking in media like music and things we're taught to essentially let it uh invoke emotions in us and and try to find the the meaning whether it was intended to be there or not and that's why like art persists is that it can mean so many different things to so many different people uh and and 
That I, actually, it, okay, so that yeah. actually, it, there's a question that it's not a specific Night of the Living Dead question, but yeah. it's something that I've been thinking about recently. I go back and forth between, it's like the death of the author concept, where I go back and forth between, uh, to, okay, ready? Here's how I'm going to phrase this. Yes. Movies are not pass-fail. Movies are not good-bad. Almost every movie that you're ever going to see is a mixed bag of elements. I get a little frustrated sometimes when people just say, oh, it's terrible, and they don't have anything else to say about it. Right. I think the closest you can get, because it is all subjective, it is so much more about, well, what affects you, what moves you, more so than uh, objective standards of some kind. Mm-hmm. I do think if we're going to talk about assessing a movie objectively as, as to whether it is a quote-unquote success or failure, you have to look at what the intentions of the filmmakers were and how efficiently they executed their intention. But then I start thinking about how even if everybody goes into a project with the best of intentions and everybody works really hard and everybody gets really close to hitting the marks they were going for, sometimes your final product may end up saying something that the filmmakers didn't necessarily intend Intent. yeah, because of what other people bring to it. And I don't specifically know what my question is, but I wanted to, I guess, ask, like, how do you feel about that idea? Like, are you a big death of the author guy or do you look at people's intention and assess the story based on what the intention of the storyteller was? I, I don't, to me, I don't think that intention really matters Um, because Yes, the person could have gone into a project with a specific intention. And if we're talking about artistic intention, like they intended to make these shots look a specific way that would elicit a a feeling of cool or sadness or happiness, or they added a certain score to make you feel specific things, then yes, there is a a success and a, a failure in that regard. And even that, I feel like that's still subjective, right? Like right. I feel like to get the idea across using words like success or failure helps make the point. Right. But even that, I feel like it's, it's very subjective. It is. Because the filmmaker might nail exactly what they were trying to do. It may affect me deeply yeah. and it may not evoke anything in you at all. Right. And, uh, but I think that like, there's a certain amount of like, I think that when you're making a piece of art whatever it is like it's all there's always going to be a a, a camp that finds it uh abhorrent and there's a, going to be a camp that understands it there's going to be a camp that like can appreciate it but it's not for them right there are always going to be these different camps those so, by the way i think those are my favorite people are the people that can appreciate something while at yeah. the same time recognizing that it's not them you've heard me say this not Mm -hmm. on this show so far but you've heard me say a number of times in the time we've known each other i get i it drives me up a wall when people speak as if they cannot differentiate between it did not work for me and it is objectively not good right i i so my my heart is full every time i meet somebody that can recognize that oh this this is not my cup of tea this doesn't work for me but i can appreciate the craftsmanship on display right because it shows a bigger uh, mental viewpoint. Like you could, it's because it expands beyond art into concepts. Like you can understand that, like, 
I, I, I hate doing divisive things, but like, let's say abortion. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. I was like, where's this going? You actually went to the most divisive thing yes. you could. Okay. Because um, it goes to, to concepts in that like, you can understand that, yes, uh, maybe you don't agree with it on a, a religious fundamental or whatever you, your beliefs, on a belief system standpoint, but you can understand how like it may people may need it or maybe a necessity in, in cultures and things of that sort like that ability beyond uh movies and things is a, a large show of empathy and empathy is what makes people one worth being around yes. and two it like keeps us growing as a society absolutely i mean i feel like i feel like part of why we're not going to go too far down this road, but I think part of why things are so uh, terrifying right yeah. now is because people aren't working that empathy muscle, right? By and large, um, but I do think this this idea of empathy, this idea of perspective, of recognizing craftsmanship, even if it doesn't light your world on fire, does bring us back to Night of the Living Dead. In as much as mm, I hate. I really detest the word millennial, uh-huh. but I'm going to use it here because I feel like it applies. I can see any number of millennials, uh, film fans or ostensible film fans who see Night of the Living Dead on every list of best, most influential movies of all time, movies you have to see, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And say, okay, I'm going to check it out. And I can see a, a millennial viewer of this movie not not engaging with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like it's, and yes, it's, it's there. It's a very low budget black and white movie from 1968. I, I get that if you are not used to watching a black and white movies in general, I get that you maybe need to give yourself a minute to adjust. Right. I wonder how many younger, not younger, anybody really, like, I don't even mean to pick on millennials. Adults do this too. Yeah. I wonder by and large, how many people, go into it ready to fully engage with it and let it do its thing as opposed to I I see how if you're not engaged with Night of the Living Dead specifically if you're not uh, willfully engaging with it yeah stuff might just breeze by you you might legitimately miss a major character death for example because right. those moments even though some of them are gruesome they they go pretty quick mm-hmm. um you may miss these moments and it may the movie may not work for you at all and i wonder I don't know. I want to talk to somebody like that, but I feel like it would be very frustrating. Uh, I mean, it might not be frustrating. I think I I think that the pacing, especially with the current pacing of of movies that we watch now, it does, especially the beginning, feel slow. Like you spend the first, I want to say like five to ten minutes, like watching a car go down a road. I had a thought as I was watching the movie, and. I, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of this movie. Right. But until we get to like the third act, I multiple times and I put it in my notes. I was like, "This is the chillest zombie apocalypse ever." Oh yeah, yeah. Well, because no one knows what's happening, and so like I feel like, and I think I have the the same but like different uh, note in that I felt like it was a very realistic depiction in that it, a lot of apocalypses are just kind of like waiting around or like big events a lot not because not because i haven't experienced many apocalypses um yeah 
Uh, I haven't experienced many apocalypse, but I imagine <laughs> that it's a lot of waiting around to figure out like what the next step is, especially back then when there wasn't an internet to tell you exactly what's happening minute by minute, second by second. Like right now, anything happens around the world, we get in automatic updates to our phones, to our house. But like these people literally were very excited to see a radio and then they were super excited to get a tv set up so i i felt like that kind of sense of waiting and non-urgency one built the tension but also like was super realistic yeah and i feel like too like you say like we are in the very in the story we're in the very early stages of right. the zombie apocalypse the, the tv is still broadcasting you know what i mean like mm-hmm. we're we're it's it's early days whereas you get further and further into these movies and by the time you get to Land of the Dead, which is another one that I haven't seen for years and years and years, but if I remember correctly, by the time you get to Land of the Dead, the humans are the minority. Humans are essentially fighting for survival and like building little insular societies in a world overrun by reanimated corpses. Hmm. But in Night of the Living Dead, it's just begun and it's happening as it would it's happening pretty slowly but every time a new zombie is turned you know they go and they bite two more people yeah they go out and each one of them goes and bites two more people and every day it it exponentially increases in scale this this zombie apocalypse but it does make sense where if we're in the first few days of it it would be creeping in pretty gradually Mm -hmm. yeah which really gave our our protagonists Plural. Protagoni? Ooh. Protagases. <laughs> Protagases. I'm going to ride my Protagases into the sunset. Uh, but it, it gave them a lot of time for character development, which was nice. But, like, back to your, your original thought question thing. Uh, I do feel like the biggest barrier is the slower pacing Uh, which I think that if you're going in deliberately to experience this story and, and, and know like what all the beats are, then I think you are more likely to, to kind of appreciate it. Whereas like, if you're just throwing it on in the background, like it will fade real fast. Yes. The word you used is experience and there is... I get bummed out whenever I talk about this because I feel like even if nobody says it, I feel like I occasionally get looks that say, pipe down, old man. But there is a difference between watching a movie passively and really engaging with it as a viewer and experiencing it. That's why, like, I get it. It, We all have smartphones now and not every one of us has, like, a big flat screen TV. So I get you take advantage of what you have available. Yeah. But you can't experience a movie watching it on your phone. Right. You, you can't. It's not It's not immersive enough. And I get that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of very intelligent, uh, well-versed film fans who are totally cool with watching and not experiencing. And they might express it exactly that way. I don't need to be that deeply immersed. I just need to be able to watch it. Yeah. For me, it, it that willingness to engage and that willingness, the empathy, like you were saying, to completely throw yourself into it like to supplicate yourself before every movie you experience just to do because that's in my opinion it's just one dude's opinion that's how you get the most 
that you possibly can out of it. Yeah. And I think, yes, in the case of, say, A Night of the Living Dead, like I was saying, if you are not used to watching uh, black and white movies, for example, especially black and white movies with a bit of a slower pace, you maybe need to teach yourself how to watch it a little bit, much like we were talking about, uh, we're going to be talking about, because we're recording these a little bit out of order. Yeah. Sausage Factory. Um, <laughs> we talk about on another episode the where we discuss Samurai Shampoo. How I'm not an anime guy, but I feel like I could get into it a little bit more. I just have to really train my brain yeah. to watch it. I feel like this is this is much the same in that regard. But I feel like, like you were saying, it is about experiencing it. It's about allowing yourself to experience it, not get frustrated with the slower pace 10 minutes in and go, I'm bored. Right. Just stick it out. Yeah. Let yourself, let it wash over you. Let it, let it immerse you in this world and you get so much more out of every movie you're going to watch mm-hmm. but for some reason when i say that i still get these looks like be quiet old man stop that <laughs> i mean we live in a fast-paced world ain't nobody got time to immerse themselves in any kind of medium like, i'm just like i'm just like what do you do? go update your snapchat yeah that's super important okay well now that makes you sound like an old man <laughs> yes, <it does>. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, speaking of, you brought up Shamrai Shampoo. Um, the the way that the zombies moved and the way that they interacted reminded me specifically of uh, Attack on Titan, which we I've mentioned to you before, and we talked a little bit about uh, uh, on another like episode. We'll, we'll get to it probably on a future show yes. specifically. But I think that you will you will definitely I think you'll find a connection to it if you enjoy the Romero type zombies. They are exactly like the Titans are exactly like the zombies. Uh, except naked and giant. So it just adds an additional layer in terms of the intimidation factor. Can you imagine Night of the Living Dead, but all the zombies are naked and giant? I can. It's called Attack on Titan. Oh, fair enough. And also, sidebar, to be clear, I do... I'm not... uh, trying to impugn the intelligence of anybody who has a hard time getting into older black and white movies. It, I totally, completely understand how, if you're not used to it, it might feel completely impenetrable. Yeah. And I feel like, in every case, I feel like context is everything, but nowhere more so in film than when you do go back and watch older movies, because you have to, as best you're able, try and forget everything you know about cinema post whatever movie you're watching mm-hmm. and you have to try and put yourself in the place of okay what's what's going on in the world at this time what's going on in film at this time we don't we don't have the resources that we have now back in the 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s um we weren't telling the types of stories so night of the living dead i i totally respect that you may look at it and not in 2017 not have your shoes blown right off your feet but imagine like we were talking about up top imagine being in the audience in 1968 but also too going back even further i mean if you watch movies from the 30s and 40s i I, a a good friend of mine like going way way back uh has a hard time getting into it and he referenced more than once like he doesn't like the acting the acting in old movies is bad no it's not it's just not realistic and that's true it's not but you can't you can't i mean i guess you can but it's i don't accept the argument that this lack of realism means it's a bad performance because realism in screen performance really didn't exist till 
practically a second ago. And right. like Brando and on the waterfront typically gets the credit. Before that, realism wasn't even the goal. Right. So I feel like you can't really make the argument that they failed in their performances when they were never shooting for realism. So all of this to say, context is super, super important, especially when you're watching older movies. Right. Yeah. Even in that example that you gave, it feels like there is somewhat of a catch-22 aspect of it in that in order to appreciate where all of the things that you enjoy about movies came from, you have to, uh, you have to have the context in which it's changed. And so like knowing that the acting style was, uh, was different than allows you to appreciate it. You just have to expose yourself to enough of it to know that that's what you're looking for. Yes, essentially. Right. But again, I, I accept full, none of this is me, is me trying to put down people who have a hard time, getting into older movies. I, yeah. I do completely understand. It's just, I, I would also highly encourage people to take the time because there is so, so, so much there once you find your in. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, be admittedly like, I, I am one of those people who finds it hard to get into older movies and things of that sort. And that's partially why we started this podcast is to have that exposure and a reason to go back and really get that context for the older movies. And so I could appreciate the things that I am experiencing now and just get a broader view of movies and, and music and, and TV than I already have and, and uh, get that extra bit of just like life experience. Yeah. And I do, you say life experience, but I do think, we're talking we're talking about a lot of things now that are that are pretty broad as far as all forms of art are concerned it's not certainly the conversation is very much no longer confined to one movie in uh, art and and movies in particular i've heard them referred to as essentially empathy machines and i feel like if you really do invest yourself in a movie that you're watching you can have any range of experiences now no watching platoon is not the same as going and serving in combat but you can experience the emotion of it you can truly be affected in a way that yeah can actually fundamentally change you sometimes for the better and i think that's really cool and it's it's about the way you engage with art and we're talking about movies because we started the conversation with a movie but it applies to any piece of art, as long as you're, whether it's a book, a movie, a painting, a sculpture, whatever it is, it's about, you look at what it is and then what you bring to it and how much you are willing to invest yourself and, and engage with it. Mm-hmm. You can be affected in such a way that it's almost like you, it's almost like, not the same as, but it's almost like you lived through something profound yourself, which is like that's magic you know what i mean like and i know like when i when i go on my tears about how i think movies are the closest thing in this world that exists to real magic even if people agree with me they're like all right dude calm down and they roll their eyes a little bit but like i believe that very strongly because you can you can truly be transported and experience things in a way that you know hopefully you and i never have to experience the early days of a zombie apocalypse or god forbid the latter days of a zombie apocalypse Mm mm-hmm but you get a sense watching Night of the Living Dead. If you really engage and you really invest, you can put yourself in that position. And it's not about, oh, I don't, I don't agree with what these characters are doing. That's what a dumb decision that is. Because like, not for nothing, you and I probably know how we 
how we think we might behave or how we'd like to behave, but we don't know what we do in a zombie apocalypse until one happens. Right. But you can have an experience along with the characters that you're watching and it's completely dependent on how much you're willing to invest in the story. But if you do, I mean, the rewards can be endless. Yeah. Damn. I think there's no way that we can top that. Is that a, is that a good note to go? That's out a on? great note to go out on. So I guess my, my question for you then, uh, since we're going to, we're going to wrap in a minute, I think let's tie everything up with a nice pretty bow. Yeah. Having now seen night of the living dead, a, would you encourage others who haven't seen it to go check it out? Even if maybe older black and white movies, not necessarily their cup of tea. B, are you more inclined now to explore other cinematic zombie stories than you were before? Um, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I would give the caveat that it's a little slow at the beginning, but it really like ramps up. And I feel just like it's, to, like, it's fair to prepare somebody. Right. It's like, don't, don't bail 15 minutes in because you're waiting for a horde of zombies to show up and start ripping people's arms off. Right. Um, but I, it does, it definitely has kind of made me think about, uh, zombie lore and how it's kind of grown over the years. Uh, especially since we, I, one of the main things I was questioning or I guess thinking about was the origin of the word zombie in that, like we, it's never used in the, the movie. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I am really interested to check out more, uh, zombie flicks? Is that flicks? Sure. Well, I feel like if you liked Night of the Living Dead, there's quite a bit for you in Dawn of the Dead, certainly. Right. Um, but I would also, man, I'm actually, now I'm really excited that you got to see Night of the Living Dead before you've seen Shaun of the Dead, because I, dude, go check that out at your, your earliest opportunity, because you will get so much more out of it. Yeah. And I think you would have gotten a lot anyway, but you will get so much more out of it now than you would have. Okay. Uh, let's do an episode on it. I am so, I'm, I'm always down to pop on Shaun of the Dead and then talk about how much <laughs> I like that movie. Yeah. For sure. And now I'm talking to the audience. Hey, audience, what other movies should we do? Why don't you let us know on Twitter? You can find us at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G. O-U-T-C-A-S-T Missing Outcast uh, And you can also follow us on our personal Twitters. Where can they find you, Lex? I am on Twitter and all of the social mediums uh, at the Lex Michael. Nice. And you can find me at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y uh, Thank you again for listening to us talk about art and media and uh, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, these episodes come out every Tuesday. They'll be in your news feed, so don't forget to subscribe. Hit that little subscribe button, and it really helps us out. If you were to leave us a rating and a comment, it helps boost us to the top of the feeds, lets other people know that this is a show that people like. Yeah, and if you like us, don't you want your friends to like us too? Right? So do all the things, and we will see you next week. Big kiss, Mom. Mwah.